Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Micah Christensen, welcome back to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here. There, a lot has happened since I saw you last. I've been traveling, seen a lot of shows, and we're going to talk about one of them today. Yeah, yeah, I've missed you. It's been rough. It's been hard not to have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've missed you too, buddy. Yeah, feelings mutual. Yeah, it's good. It's great to have you back, and I'm excited to hear what you've uh, what you've been into. So, who's the artist we're going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about an artist that I would be shocked if really anybody's heard of him. His name is Francisco Pradilla y Ortiz, and we can just call him Pradilla. Um, okay. He, he's probably most famous now because he was one of uh, Joaquin Sorolla's teachers. Sorolla, who is this, and the reason why I saw an exhibition and wanted to talk about him is uh, this is the 100th anniversary of Sorolla's death. So there are about 20 exhibitions that are taking place worldwide. I'm going to see all of them. I've seen, out of the 20, I've seen eight so far. Wow. And uh, I'm going to Spain a few times. I'm going to France a couple of times this year. New York has a couple of shows. Dallas has a show. I'll be in Dallas next week. And um, Okay, so I don't, um, want to, I don't want to skip over that because some people might be interested yeah. in this as I am. I know, obviously, we're, we're talking about Francisco Padilla, but... I'm curious about that. Why in your profession do you feel that that's important to see all 20 of these exhibits? How do you, how is that significant to you in your profession? It's a good question. Um, I'm not usually a fanboy of anything. I'm not the kind of person who like lines up to see celebrities or goes out of my way to, to mm -hmm. do something like to see all of the Vermeers, though there is a great Vermeer show that just took place. The reason why I'm... I'm doing this is I'm writing a book on Soroya right now. Oh. And even though he's been dead for a hundred years, I would say that maybe 70% of the works that he did are still in private collections. And so when they have exhibitions like these, it's one of the rare moments when these works are borrowed from the private collectors and shown publicly. Oh, okay. So I can go and and see, I take my camera with me and I go crazy. So the book that I'm writing is called Educating Soroya, and it's all about how he was trained as an artist. And many of the exhibitions are focused on his early works, which are largely in private collections still. So I'm, I'm going for the selfish reasons of finding those images. We think that we live in the internet age, and as a result of that, we've got all access to everything we don't even have i mean we don't have close to the the reproductions of some of these artists works that they created online Soria hmm. probably did i don't know seven to eight thousand works oh my gosh um, depending on how you count drawings and everything else and i would say that only two thousand of those are online maybe fifteen hundred 
So are any of the gems floating around out there not being seen? Yeah, they're still, you know, the major pieces are mostly known. That's true. The, mo the major pieces are mostly known. I wouldn't say they're great reproductions of them online, uh, of all of them. But um, and that's part of the problem I'm trying to solve. Even with these exhibitions, most of them don't have catalogs. Most of them don't have online versions of the exhibition. You have to go see them in person to see the works. It's crazy. So then you photograph them on the wall at the museum, but that's not the photograph you're going to use in your book, I would assume. It may be in some cases. I've got a very high-end camera that I use. Okay. And I take color correction cards when I go. Whoa. And then <laughs> when I when I go to uh um and sometimes I'll have the security guard hold my color correction card. And there's no like legal <laughs> legal issues with just shooting it on the no, wall. No, that's putting it in that's the book? after the fact. So after the fact, if I decide to use the image, then I'll contact the owner and I'll say, Do I have permission to use this? I've got my own image. Okay, so now how does that work? Does the owner, because, you know, as a living artist, the owner of my paintings doesn't own the rights. The, the person, if someone wanted to have a reproduction of my painting, they'd have to come to me, the artist, even though someone else owns the painting. So what happens to a dead yeah. artist? Wouldn't it be the family that you have to go to? Uh, the family is not really that involved in most artists' lives. Most artists aren't famous enough. I mean, which family member would I go to out of 80 grandchildren or to talk to about something like that. And copyright runs out after 75 years, unless it's in the United States, unless it's renewed. How it works is usually there are, and this is also true for living artists in a lot of cases, is um, you have a copyright as the artist of the image to reproduce your own image, right? And then there's the person who bought your work who now owns the image itself, mm -hmm. right? And they have the right to do with that image what they want. And they have limited use to grant copyright of that image if people take photographs of it. Those people are not allowed to, the people who take photographs from the work of art that, that, uh, the, owner, that the, the owner of the work has, don't trump your rights as a living artist to sell their images for money. Okay. Right? They, they can't do that, right? But let's say I go to the Met and we're dealing with all dead artists in the Metropolitan Museum. The Metropolitan Museum owns the rights to all of those images. And they own the rights to tell you what you can do with the images you take with it. So almost mm. everything that's in a museum, almost every museum has a disclaimer when you walk in the door. They're barely visible usually. That says that you're welcome to take images for personal use, but not for commercial reproduction. And okay. in the case you want to use them for commercial reproduction, you have to talk to, um, to to uh, to the uh, to to the institution. But there are exceptions. So, um, if I wanted to take an image of your work, Jeff, and put it on my website, and talk about it for critical or educational purposes, I could do that. Okay. But if I started to publish a book that I was making money on with your images in it, even if the commentary was critical or educational, because now I'm making money on, and I'm publishing it mm. in that format, that's, that's changed. So what I need to do is I need the image, uh, I need the permission, not of the Soroya family, of which there are kind of a couple members hanging around, but 
and they kind of insert themselves into a lot of different things, mm -hmm. right? That they maybe don't need to. Um, but they they are. I, I talk to the owner of the image, so I'll go to the person who has the collection, okay. and I'll say, "Can you do that?" Okay. As an art dealer, I temporarily have image rights. And I own copyright to any image I take of an image that I've owned when I it's in my gallery. I was just going to ask you that because at Anthony's Fine Art, which is the gallery that you own, which is spectacular, by the way. So if any of you are in Salt Lake City, it is um, seriously a destination um, spot in Salt Lake City. You have to visit. But um, you've got incredible work. So everything that's in your gallery that you own while you own it the assumption is legally that you also own print rights to it. That's right. And any image that I take of a work that I own while I own it, it creates a new copyright. And then when I sell the work, I still own the copyright to the image. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty complicated. Okay, cool. It is complicated, but it's, <laughs> but that's, that's how it works. Okay. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's how it works. And there are, I mean, there are limits to this. If you look at Supreme Court cases, one of the so there there are two there are two rubrics that courts use when it comes to fine art and reproduction and rights. The first one is confusion, whether or not people can reasonably confuse what I have with what you have, mm -hmm. right? So if and and then that that bleeds into number two, which is if you can prove as an artist that I have negatively affected your revenue and business or reputation through my image, my use of your image, right? So obviously if I'm selling prints of it, case closed, that's money that could have gone to you, right? Case closed. But um, where it gets fuzzy is if I took an image of yours and I put it through a color filter and I drew a mustache on it, right? Mm -hmm. And and then I um, and I put a hat on it, and I called it by a different name. That's where we get in the weeds, because it may be um, dirty tricks. It may be me stealing things from you. But if you can't prove that I haven't taken revenue from you and it's not conf confusable with work that's done by you, then then uh, um, then this, the, the law is is on the side of the person who stole your artwork. Okay. Wow, that's Which interesting. Is... Yeah, well, that's that's a tangent that I'm glad we got went down. I like that interesting yeah, stuff. I'm not I'm not we maybe we could have a long I've had long discussions about these with lawyers and and with artists over the years and with AI, it's going to get even more confusing, right? It's oh, it's yeah. worth a longer discussion one of these days. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about this in depth. Okay, so let's yeah. get back to the artist. Um, so tell me Francisco a little bit more about Perdia. your project with him. Well, Perdia, um, they had a major retrospective on him, really the first that's happened in 40 or 50 years. And uh, he, he was kind of the big dog in, in Spain when Soroya was growing up and he was in school. And, and Perdia, I think, has largely been forgotten because Pradeep didn't make a lot of works for private use. You have to think about, you know, as an art historian, you don't just think about what artists made, you think about who they made them for. So if you were to think about 
the era before the 19th century, so we're 1800s and before, most of the people and audiences that artists were making work for were kings, queens, and the church, right? So if you're Rubens, you're making them for churches, or you're making, you're making royal portraits. If you're Velasquez, you're making royal portraits. Um, you've got a court painter. But then in the 19th century, uh, nations start appearing that are getting rid of their kings and queens or replacing them with legislatures and congresses and senates. And that's what happened in Spain. And they started building a lot of public buildings. So from a period of about 1840 until about 1880, which is when Pradilla was really productive. He was productive in the 70s and 80s for the for most of the works we're going to talk about and the ones that he's famous for. He was making these for public buildings. And, and that meant that they were huge. Um, and the skill set that he developed was to make largely huge paintings. And the themes of his paintings are largely about being Spanish, about national subjects. It's If you were American, it'd be the equivalent of Washington crossing the Delaware, right? Or or the, the 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 civil war battles this is the kind of stuff that Perdia was caught up in which means that for lasting fame um unless you're spanish and you're interested in history you don't see a lot of Perdia's work he's mm. he's in a ton of magazines it's like in some level he's kind of like nc wyeth that way nc wyeth is an incredible illustrator but nc wyeth did a lot of Paul Revere, George Washington, and then he did a lot of popular like buccaneers and things that were for, he, he had the highest level of skill that he was doing for graphic work, right? Mm -hmm. You have to think of Perdia kind of like that. He was illustrating national themes, but on huge canvases for national buildings. And, and we're gonna talk a little bit about um, that's not all he was. He had a huge range of skills. That's what he's remembered for is those national paintings. There's one in particular we'll spend most of our time talking about today for which he's most famous. But I wanna talk about how he would put together a painting because that, um, regardless of his subject or even the size, um, says a lot about the skill set that he was given by being Spanish and what he gave to Soroya and another generation. And it's also what the French were trying to do because the French saw what the Spanish were doing historically and in the 19th century, and they became a little obsessed with it. And that's where you get some of the Zorn and, and Sargent approaches to painting because they're looking at this kind of work too. They, hmm. they, were, they loved Pradilla. Zorn and, and Sargent thought he was one of the greatest painters alive. So before we get into how he put these together, I do have another question for you um, about your yeah. previous point. So, I mean, you obviously know a lot about this as a collector and dealer and, you know, all the other things that you do, writer, you know, historian, everything. But so is, is the reason that he's not famous because these works were large and in public spaces and not able to be moved from collector to collector and through auction houses and galleries and so on and so forth? Or am I way off base? I mean, I don't, cause I'm not sure I exactly understand the relevance of yeah. the subject matter. You know, it's, 
it's uh it's complicated it's a good question it's complicated i mean just you have to think of it in terms of um of you know if if Perdia is making these huge paintings and they're they're famous they're being reproduced in magazines in his own time they're going to france and they're winning major awards they're going to germany um they're seen in italy as well um but he's 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 not um there's a limited number of works he can make when he's doing that so as an artist he's making fewer works because they're huge mm. right mm -hmm. um that's that's part of it even though he does work relatively fast um for for an artist who's working in that size but there's also just that um tastes change in the 19th century by the time soroya becomes famous the main buyers are not the government they're bourgeoisie middle class business owners who they don't want a painting that's eight feet by 15 feet they want a painting that's that's a, a 30 by 40 that can go over their fireplace right and so um his and and that also means that soroya has having an exhibition with two to four hundred paintings that he's taking around to different countries where pretty has got the one painting that's going around instead of you know all the multiple paintings and and then it also has to do with well when you, you're american you're starting museums and having shows um soroya soroya's paintings subject wise are women and children and beautiful landscapes that everyone can understand and appreciate they don't need the history of a of a of, of a spanish painting explained to them to understand what it is mm. mm -hmm. and and so there's a kind of it transcends time and place when you're doing fairly unspecific scenes and subjects right but when you're doing very specific scenes and subjects um you're it's like uh, i remember one time i was i was sitting next to i wasn't involved in it but i was sitting next to an um the director of the uh british museum he was being interviewed by the guardian newspaper we just happened to be at the same restaurant in london at the same time and he made a statement that uh, i've heard in various ways but he said it the most succinctly he said that um english culture is based on three things the classics of greek and roman literature the bible and shakespeare Hmm. Kind of an oversimplification. Yeah. But if you had a painting that subject was Greek or Roman mythology, Shakespeare, or uh, the, uh, Bible. the Bible, you're going to transcend to a lot of different cultures. You may not get a lot of uh, people in India interested in your biblical or Shakespearean pieces, right? But that was kind of pretty as... Um, you're talking about the lasting fame issue you know you're gonna look through these paintings i hope and be like holy cow that's unbelievable now tell me what the hell's going on right <laughs> yeah. that makes sense that makes sense okay yeah so let's let's pick up the first one i'm going to give a little bit of the background of of who perdia was um so this work is um tiny it um, is when i say tiny yeah i mean if you had to guess how big that is how get how big would you guess that is oh i was gonna guess it was like a mural 
Um, no. But now you've told me it's tiny, so I would say at minimum, I'm trying to imagine painting it myself, which I couldn't, but like maybe 24 by 16. Um, it's, it's like a, it's like a 12 by 24. Well, oh, so I was pretty close on the long side. Okay. Yeah, you were you weren't yeah, you were too me far up. off. You set me up for that. <laughs> I did set you up. I thought it was so way bigger. I was gonna guess like like eight feet by five feet or something. So he does this a little later in his career, but it's it's um it's very typical of his early works. Uh, Pradilla was born in Saragossa, which is in um central eastern spain it's uh it's not one of the most populous parts of spain but it is where goya comes from and and so you know what this is like everybody everybody kind of worships the hero artist who got out and became famous from their area and he comes from about he's born about a hundred years after goya is in the same region but he's born to a poor um itinerant farming family far a family that doesn't own any land but they go and work on other people's farms he's one of several children this is sketchy we don't know how many it's anywhere between six and and nine children in his family and he sometimes even described himself as an orphan which i don't know if his parents actually died or if it was just you know how it was the reality is that he and for all the support that he got. He starts studying at a young age um, at the School of Fine Arts in Saragossa. Now, this is really important, and I want everybody to remember this. This is something that I, I kind of harp on every time I talk about these artists um, from the 19th century, is that if you wanted to be an artist before the mid-19th century, you had to have tons of money. You had to be royal. But something changes in France in the 1840s, and then it changes in Spain in the 1850s and 60s, where they say that anyone, that they basically nationalize art schools and they add coursework like um, language, geography, and math classes in order for it to qualify as a general education institution. So instead of wanting, instead of going to elementary school at, um, at your elementary school down the street, your public school in Spain, you could go to an art school and it would count as your elementary school. Wow. So he goes, he's part of the first generation of these artists who have no money, no, no background who go to school and on sheer talent, he rises to the highest level of the art world. And he's, he's scrappy as a result of it. I mean, he doesn't have any money of his own. He, he studies for a year in, um, at his local school, and then they, get, they say, you know what, you're so good that we're going to see if we can get you a scholarship to the national school in Madrid. He goes to Madrid, and he doesn't have enough money um, to live there. So he takes on as a job painting scenes in musicals and operas. Hmm. And he is painting on, like, average-sized canvas – 20 by 40 feet he's painting um you know fake interiors he's painting gardens he's painting all with like buckets and buckets of paint 
And this is in the 19th century when the main art form that's public is um, operas. And in Spain, there's something called sarsuelas, which are kind of like our equivalent of a musical. Um, and he's doing every two weeks a whole new production. So he'll sometimes do 10, 20 by 40 canvases of, of, of for each production every two weeks what? while he's going to school. He's got one or two other artists who he's doing this work with, so he's not doing it by himself. But he's learning a lot about how to paint big and quickly during this time, right? And that has the strange effect of when he goes, um, he, he graduates from school, his first job is as a newspaper artist. They don't have photographers like we do. Um, even though photography has been around for a little while, it's still not good enough to do what he could do as an artist. Right. So he goes to the north west of Spain to a place called Galicia. And he lives for a couple of years and he does hundreds of these scenes. Hundreds of them. these little ones. And they, they're teeny. And what they and he they're, the reason they're the size they are is because he sends them in the post to the newspaper in Madrid, which then hires a a, 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 um, a steel engraver and the steel engraver turns them into black and white images that are just line engravings. Wow. So what he so so think about all these skills that he's learning as he's going through school that have nothing to do with his main education. He's doing huge scene paintings and tons of them very quickly, right? And he's understanding as a result of that perspective because mathematically he's got to fool people into thinking that he's creating physical spaces that aren't actually there, right? Mm -hmm. He's also understanding light effects that way. Right. He knows how to frame people in a scene really well. So, I mean, you could even imagine that this looks like a stage with an opera with an opera chorus or characters in a stage with a background in it. He's learning a lot about how do you get how do people actually experience things in physical space and how can I graphically make that show up and frame things really well. Then he's going as a newspaper reporter and he's learning how to tell stories and capture a lot of images a lot of information in something that is going to go into black and white. And so when you look at this and you just look at it in terms of values of mm. darks and lights, this painting is super compelling and it shows how brilliant he is at coming up with, you know, there's dark in the foreground, there's dark in the middle ground. There's, there's, there's white um, sections that are in the middle ground, right? Yeah. That's a really good effect. Mm -hmm. And notice how he's it's because of the way he's making that as a as a image, essentially as a grisaille or a black and white. Right. Mm -hmm. He's unbelievable at pulling your eye around just by value. Because he knows that's how most yeah. of his images are going to be seen. He can't rely entirely on color. Right. To do things. So he's got to treat almost everything like it's going to be a black and white line drawing. Wow, and that is quite a good value composition. It is, isn't it? It's one of the things when I looked at it, I thought, gosh, you know, he did this later in his career, and this wasn't one that was transferred. I could have picked a lot of others. I just had a good image of this. But he 
he is very good at controlling values, maybe better than almost any artist that I know in the era because of that skill. And you can imagine how I would have loved to have conversations with him and say, how many times did the etching artist send back to you or mess up your image that you sent mm-hmm. to him before you figured out how to leave them enough that they weren't massacring or totally changing your image that you had sent them. Cause that was a real problem in the, in the 19th and 18th centuries of how do you get, how do you get these, these uh, people who are translating your images into different media um, to still look good. And that was a big part of his early career. So he's yeah. painting big, he's going small, he's thinking about values and blacks and whites and what things look like in different media. Um, and I, people even at the time, um, critics who were writing about him and seeing his original small-scale work, that these multifigural pieces, and were saying they couldn't believe how fast and detailed he painted at the same time. Yeah, it's um, unbelievable. That, it really is like... It's unbelievable. And he's he's not using any special um, things as far as we know when it comes to... He's not there with magnifying glasses painting, um, which some artists no. did in earlier eras. They would, they would paint with magnifying glasses. Well, and you can see, but, it, you know, when you zoom in, you can see it must have been small once you really look at it. Because there's so... It is very, very simplified i mean some of these faces uh-huh. are just I mean, look at this lady back here she's almost like a circle with a tiny little dot for a mouth and a tiny little dot for an eye and so on so he's obviously <laughs> but then you look at like these arms and this face up here and it's so beautifully rendered the form is so convincing so yeah he's definitely is using the whole gamut as far as um level of uh, completion yeah yeah and you know to for me this goes against some of the things we were talking about earlier to me this is a timeless painting it doesn't matter what the narrative is i wouldn't care you know this is this is this is one of those pieces that you look at and 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 he he was did a lot of these we call them genre scenes or in spain they call them costume um brista scenes where you're costumbrismo scenes, sorry. And uh, it's where you're, you're just capturing everyday life. And um, I, to me, I mean, even those still life in the market on the left of those things, those vegetables that are being sold, the onions and the carrots. I mean, he just has the most beautiful ability to capture and communicate a lot of information with very little brushwork. Right. And I don't I don't know exactly how he does it. It's magical. Let me but let's talk about I think I actually do know a little bit of how he does it. And I'll get to it as we talk about the next piece, which is his most famous work and one of the most famous works done in, in the 19th century period, not just in Spain, but anywhere. This painting is enormous. Um, I don't know how full screen you can go on it. Um, and this image kind of dulls down the jewel like colors that are in a lot of it. But um Gosh, where do I start with this? I'll just tell you the title. It's um, um, Joanna the Mad Queen 
um, at the at at uh, standing by the casket of her dead husband, which is got to be it's a mouthful. But but let me tell you the story before we talk about Perdi and his work. So in 19th century Spain, uh, they become obsessed with the Spanish Golden Age. Every nation's got its golden age, right? The American Revolution's kind of our golden age. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, uh, when, when you're thinking about Spain, they're thinking about um, and, and explaining who they are as a country. They go back to the 16th and 17th centuries. This is when Spain ruled not just Spain, but they ruled most of Germany. They ruled... Um, most uh, a lot of Italy, Naples, um, and they were very close to the Pope. They ruled the Philippines and Latin America. So it was um, maybe the largest by land empire in the world, maybe since even. And her parents, um, who who had kicked off this huge, I mean, she. She was the daughter of Isabel and Ferdinand, who were the ones that financed Columbus and who united Spain for the first time in centuries. Mm-hmm. And the, the children of Isabel and Ferdinand were real problems. I mean, they, there was no, they, they, here they had done all this work to unite Spain. And then they had children that died of various diseases. And they had this daughter who her name was Joanna. And Joanna had many children. She was one of the most um, educated women in history. She spoke, I think, maybe nine languages and was well-versed in in warfare, the classics, government, religion, everything. But when her parents died, when her mother died, um, there was a sustained campaign to make her seem crazy, to gaslight her. Totally make her seem so insane that the and this isn't just 21st century me too kind of language there was a concerted attempt by men to not let her rule and her husband who's the one dead in the casket was philip the handsome and he had a nickname he was called the handsome because he was a womanizer he died of syphilis the mm-hmm. venereal disease oh so it's not a compliment and <laughs> no. And uh, one of these, uh, one of these, uh, uh, this scene is supposedly she's eight months pregnant and he is supposed to, he dies and is going to be buried in Cadiz, which is the traditional location of royal burials. But she's hundreds of miles away. And because she's crazy, right, as an eight month pregnant woman in winter, she decides to accompany the casket of her husband going hundreds of miles on foot from where they are and he dies to where they're supposed to be buried. And it gets even crazier because if you look at the top right of the painting, there's a building and that building is supposedly a religious convent. And in this story where it's trying to make her seem even crazier, um, when she finds out that where they're going to stay the night on this long journey is in a convent where nuns are, she's so concerned that her husband will come back to life and have sex with the nuns <laughs> that she stays outside, makes sure that no one go that the casket doesn't go inside the nunnery, the convent, 
and she keeps vigil over the casket at night and opens it occasionally to make sure he's really dead. Right? So wow. it's called Juana La Loca. And there's some elements. If you back off a little bit, you can see that um, there's, there's some things that Pradia does to show sympathy for her. One is she's got a little bit of a mad look in her eyes, right? She's yeah, there she focused does. on her. She's, fo she's in the middle of the smoke and not even paying attention to it. There's an implication that her head is a little in the clouds, that she's standing in this fire. And, and you can see the ladies in waiting and are, are sympathetic. There, there's one on the left who's looking at her like, oh, this poor woman. Um, there's there's uh, the women on the right who are warming their hands by the fire in their very fine clothing that is surely getting ruined by this, who are just talking among themselves about, oh, here we go again. Then there are the men that are above the women who are um, clearly not sympathetic and just think she's absolutely insane. Wow. This, pain, this painting won the top award. He did this, he painted this in six months. It is eight feet by, um, I think, 12 feet. And wow. um, he, uh, he paints it in, in uh, Rome, where he's one of the first graduates from a new experimental school that the Spanish have there that they're trying to get international uh, um, attention for. And he sends it back to Spain. It gets the top award. And then Spain um, is going to participate in the World's Fair of 1878. They called it the Universal Exhibition. And it was in France. And this is where all the top painters from all the major Western countries compete with one another. And France wins it almost every year, right? Mm -hmm. This is the first year that I think anybody other than a French person wins it. And they're largely French judges and they give it to Juana La Loca by Pradilla. And they say, and this is, this is one of the greatest commentaries I found when I was writing about this a while ago, a French uh, uh, critic says, who is this crazy woman? I have no idea, but it doesn't matter because this is beautiful. We all know now that Velasquez is alive and well in Spain and his name is Pradilla. Wow, that's quite a compliment. It's a huge compliment. And and it's it, Pradilla would have loved it because, you know, I've told you that what he does is he goes to, um, he goes to Madrid and he goes to school and he starts scene painting. And then after he graduates, he goes and does this newspaper work. But I've got photographs of decades of the copyist books at the Prado. These are the books that if you're a painter and you want to go copy a masterwork, you have to write your name in the book every morning and you have to say which painting you're going to be copying that day. Hmm. I have Pradia being there. I think... Over 20 years, he only misses 10 days of copying when the Prado's open. And all of those days, he's in front of Velasquez. So wow. for 20 years, he's copying Velasquez over and over and over again, trying to tease out how Velasquez does his work. Hmm. So more than almost anybody else that I know of, in the 19th century. And, you know, I can put Pradilla there the same day that Sargent is there, the same day that um, that Zorn is there, the same day that Soroy is there. I can put Pradilla copying and people running into Pradilla 
and and people saying things like, "Hey, um, I want to meet this Pradilla painter," and pe other people would say, "Oh, then just go to the Prado and look for Velasquez paintings. He'll be in front of him copying them." Wow, that's that's who he was. He just so for him copied. that compliment was incredible because obviously and it, and it, he idolized him. He idolized him, and and it, what's crazy is how it shows up in the way that he does this. I've got six more images. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each one of them, but but um, six more images right after this that I sent you that are all okay. his preparatory studies for this. The first image I'm going to show you after this is um, his first version that he imagined this painting being. It's small. It's only roughly like a six by eight, maybe a little bigger. And it's in oil and it's very vague. You can barely tell what's going on. But when Juana or Joanna learns that her husband dies, she's apparently on the wall of this castle in, um, in uh, Valladolid, a city in Spain. And he decides as his, his first um, idea of how he's going to tell this story is not telling the moment when she's with her funeral train outside of the convent, but when she receives the news of his death and she falls and holds onto the wall for support mm. hearing the story. What's important and why I want to show this to you is that he doesn't do drawings for his first version. His first version is immediately in oil. And that's how Perdia and most Spanish artists work, which is very unlike the French, very unlike the German, very unlike the English, very unlike almost any other 19th century training that you would learn. The Spanish almost immediately go into oil sketches, which they call bocetos. And this is, it's a minimal color, right? He's basically doing a value piece here, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see that he's got figures and you can see where they're they're actually I, I think he does a very good job if you look at it long enough you can see oh that's where the shoulder is that's where the hip is you can see where things are mostly it's a little dirty yeah well you, you know? can see there are smaller figures here and even smaller ones here some sort of a torch or candle there's a lot here a lot of information even right? little birds in the on the horizon <clears throat> And he works very quickly to do something like this. He'd maybe, you know, work on it for a couple of days and and get it up to this point, maybe a week even. And and then um, then sometimes he'll go into drawing. We've got at least two drawings that he did as he's shifting ideas. And they're a mix of drawings and and uh, and and uh, gouache. So this first one, this next one is when he's got the next version of the the piece, and. You know, it's it's mostly I think that that's mostly ink pencil and there's a little bit of of white gouache. But mm. you see, it's a much flatter image. So yeah. he's got almost everybody in that middle horizontal and he's got the vertical of the tree that's going a little bit through it. He's got her on the left side of the casket, the caskets between him and between her and the people with their heads bowed. But this is tiny. This is, you know, maybe a four by six or a. It's it's a very small piece. And if you were French at this moment, you would make maybe this would be your kind of premier ponce, your um your thumbnail sketch. And 
then you would turn this into more detailed line drawings. You wouldn't go into oil immediately after this. I've got one more that's his thumbnail sketch that is his final thumbnail sketch. Yeah, that one. This one Not here. that next one, that one right there, yeah. That is the one that he does, that is the only drawing that I know he does before he goes into oil. Only drawing. And this is essentially what the large oil painting looks like. But this is tiny. This is only, you know, like two or three. This is like, I think it's four inches by six inches. Yeah, this is That's just a concept drawing. study. This is not, it's nice to see this because this is what my concept studies look like. And I'm always embarrassed. Isn't it I'm like, oh gosh, it, it looks like a child drew it. how much of it, you, but it's, yeah, I know you're probably an artist. You're like, gosh, but, yeah. but look at how much you can see the final painting in that. Yeah, I mean, it's it clearly he's just working out concept and composition. And it's all out of his imagination, obviously. I mean, it's great. Mm -hmm. You can even see the yep. little building up here. Everything's there. The yeah. coffin right here. Obviously, this is her. The tree is even in there. The smoke. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is the painting. Isn't that crazy? That? Yeah, it's very precise. So, he was apparently as a as a teacher of Soroya, he was a rigorous drawer and he was very good at drawing nudes and doing the full figure. He found almost no use for that when he was coming up with the final with with the work. Okay, so here's what I want to know. So this was this done before this? Did yep. he Yeah. So he like, okay, he did this color study and he's like, no, I need to I need to work this out conceptually more. And then he goes to this. Is that what's happening? It goes, it goes that the, 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 he goes first into oil. Yeah. Um, and then he realizes he doesn't totally want to do that off scene. From the, yep. I mean, from yep. the, uh, uh, you know, yeah. from his end he, goal. He decides it's not the right moment. And then he goes to the, the, that one you can click on right there, the second one we saw. And this is another concept sketch where he's like, uh, you know, is this what I want to look like? And then, you know, I don't know if we have all of the of the things in between where he experimented with different ideas, but this is the first concept sketch for the one that he land that he lands on the composition so, okay. and subject. So it seems like to me, like I don't know, I can't. You, uh, it's impossible to get into the head of an artist, but from one artist to another, it feels like to me what he did was he gets overzealous. He's like, I got this great idea. He goes into oil and then he's like, no, it's all wrong. Let me go back and just do some quick concept sketches and work this thing out. But I, I mean, well, I can't I, know I, that, but. The only thing that I would change is that as I don't think that the Spanish saw the drawing or the oil sketch as being which one needed to come first. They, you, they, they use them interchangeably. The French would have said, oh, you jumped in too early and started doing oil. You needed to really work this out as a drawing first. No, the that's Spanish not what I'm suggesting. Said, I'm suggesting okay. that on some paintings, the oil might have been the way to go. But I, well, I'm visualizing yeah. him in his studio doing this, right? So he's doing this right. in his studio, and then and then he and then one day he's sitting at a at you know at a park or something or a restaurant, and he pulls out a little four by six piece of paper and he's like, I just do not like what I did over there. I don't like that painting yeah. I'm working on. It's not the right composition. And then he starts yeah. doodling and comes up with this. And then he goes back yes. and, and works this out. That's how I imagine That's it right. happening. But That's right. So it's, I not think like you're he, absolutely it's, right. it's not like he couldn't have done the painting and been successful, but 
He's like, nope, the painting's not working. Let me just jot down some notes. You're yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And then he does after he does this, he starts working almost immediately into oil sketches. Mm -hmm. And I've got two oil sketches to show you. There's that one, which um, this is the biggest size I could find. I'm sorry, it's not a huge image. But it is interesting that for him, um, and he'd also he this school in Rome that he goes to the Royal uh, Spanish Academy of Fine Art um, is is the equivalent of the French Academy in Rome. Mm -hmm. And you, there were three kinds of artists who could go there, landscape painters, history painters and sculptors. And the most prestigious one to go as is a history painter. And the second most is a sculptor and the third is a landscape painter. He applies to the school as both a landscape painter and as a history painter. He is one of the first Spanish artists of his of, of the 19th century who sees who who sees landscape and puts his figures in landscape as being just as important as the figures. And so one of the things that makes Pradilla interesting is that unlike a lot of figure artists who really struggle with putting their figures in physical space, Pradilla loves setting people in very complicated scenes. And he often paints the scenes without figures in them and then adds the figures later. So here's this study that he does of, he goes directly into oil. He doesn't draw it again, mm -hmm. as far as I know. And, has been, and, and as far as his biographer, um, Wilfredo Garcia Rincon is the one who does his biography. He believes that Perdia goes from that tiny little drawing immediately into oil studies of different moments. And he does dozens of these. If you were French, you would do drawings of individual faces, individual moments, and then you would um, do a full render drawing of everything. And then you would do a final color study in oil, just like, and then you do the final painting. And the Spanish changed this. And this is what I think is part of the magic of being Pradilla in Spanish in the 19th century. And this is what changes Sargent and Zorn, who learn it from Bona and from um, Carolus Duran, who are obsessed with these Spanish techniques of, you know what, guys, we're not going to do everything in line drawings. We're going to get concepts and then we're going to immediately go into oil and we're going to use big brushes, which the Spanish didn't always use big brushes, but we're going to go immediately into oil. So you got Perdia who takes a concept drawing and then rigorously works in oil to get the painting done, not in line drawings. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that seems revolutionary to you, but as an art historian, it was revolutionary for the 19th century. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's not, I, I personally don't use drawing in my work either. So it, it rings very true and very, I mean, not authentic, but it, yeah, that seems natural to me. But I do realize in the, the French period, I mean, in a lot of artists today, they do really elaborate drawings and then will even transfer their drawings and then paint onto the transfer drawing. Um, you know, a so. lot of the schools got it from. So if we were to look at the descendants of today's traditional fine figured artists, right, the, the, the Florence Academy, the Grand Central Academy, um, the uh, Daniel Graves, Graydon Parrish, a lot of these artists who are at the forefront of figurative art revival for a certain group of people. They're all descendants of Richard Lack. And Lack is a descendant of Ives Gamble. 
And Ives Gamble was taught by William McGregor Paxton. And William McGregor Paxton studied with Jean-Léon Jérôme. And so they're all taking these French methods, which go from Jérôme, one of the greatest teachers and painters of the 19th century, but who rigorously followed the approach of, um, we're gonna do a figure study in, as in, in graphite or in charcoal, and then we're gonna break down all those elements that are important if we're gonna do a multifigural narrative. And then we're gonna put it all together, all of these, just these, these separate studies we did in great detail, and we're gonna make one big drawing, maybe it's even gridded, and then we're gonna do a color study that's barely color on top of that usually. And then we're gonna make an oil painting from that. And that's how Paxton taught Gamble. That's how Gamble taught Lack. That's how Lack taught his students to do it. Right. And the Spanish um, would, would go almost directly into an oil um, because they thought that's how Velasquez did it. They didn't know how Velasquez actually did it. Turns out they were kind of close to right. That's yeah, that's what Velasquez I thought. Did. I thought Velasquez worked right? directly onto the canvas. But the French were arguing for a time that that's not how Velasquez did it. That there's, they're gonna, if you took off all the paint, you'd find all these detailed drawings under Velasquez's works. Hmm. And now we know because of radiography, because of x-rays, that's not true. We hmm. know that that's not true, right? Um, it is true of some artists um, during the time, but it's not true of Velasquez. And Perdia, he's, I, I don't, there's a part of me that kind of likes the study often more than the final work. Oh, I Man, know. I would, I would kill. kill to own this little landscape and this little study. Oh my gosh. Aren't they just so full of life and energy? Well, and just it, it's the brain, the, the studies are the brain of the artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's how they got there. It's all, there's almost something more intimate and more personal about all of the legwork than the final piece. Um, and I mean, Look that's how, probably just cause I'm, you know, you know, because it, that's how I feel that, too. Yeah. Because I'm a painter, but there's, there's, there's a part of me that one of the most beautiful things about this, the study in the top left of the fire is the, is that hill that in the, in the foreground is brown and you've got those, 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 those colors from the fire. And then all of that really gorgeous green mossy color and then how it changes in value and specificity as it goes back to that building and then you see that it's not in the final painting and you think oh yeah i know work. it's so beautiful plus that, that sky beautiful. is so dramatic oh i know it's, it's just... so dramatic yeah so go to the other color study the other oil study that i've got at this well let me here. let me point out something here oh, that i ahead. find interesting yeah. though so i don't i mean this isn't a critique because i mean i can't hold a candle to this guy it's not a critique and i find it sort of charming even but see this one well let me before i make my observation let me ask you were these done from an actual location or are they, yeah he did he he um he did have a location, but that's a complicated thing that you've got in mind. Because I think that what these artists would do is they would go out and they'd do a plein air study in order to get the flavor of a place. And then they would enhance it 
with their own imagination. Right. And that's what the so, final is. The final is the enhancement. Yeah. But I'm wondering if this is plain air and you answered that for me. So I think it's, I think that's that even started as plain air, but I think that in, in and of itself could have been an enhancement of him exaggerating too. Well, it would have had to have been <laughs> simply because of the fire. Yeah. I mean, and the sky, right. those things don't hold right. still. Right. But right. I'm just right. curious if the building and everything in the landscape was generally available, but, and it sounds like it was at least generally available. But what's interesting is on the final piece, it, there's some weird perspective happening. Like in the foreground, it's almost as though he's hovering above the yeah. ground almost. And, and his eye level feels much higher than the horizon line. And he's looking oh, down yeah. at the fire. And yet the horizon line is right here. There's this weird bending it, in the perspective. In, it is in this absolutely painting. deliberate. And when you're sitting and standing in person in front of you, it works. Because it, what it does is it forces the figures to make you feel like you're crowded in with the figures and it makes the distance like it makes the landscape feel like you're in it more right so right. it's exaggerated you're absolutely right that it's exaggerated but it's calculated in its exaggeration it is so in and person when you're standing up next because it's a 12-foot canvas the perspective so are you saying it's kind of like what michelangelo did with the david where he purposely distorted the perspective in order for it to work in person absolutely absolutely and so it's it's unfair to look at this as a reduced image on on that level right because when you're in it in person you feel like you're being enveloped by that landscape and you feel like you're right next to her wow at the same time wow um there are things that we know he was very careful about so he's in rome painting this and he sends to his friends um requests that they give him uh historically accurate reproductions in drawing of the candelabras of what the funeral casket looked like of the clothes of the of uh, and so he's a lot of these are things that are in the national trust it's almost like there you hear stories of emmanuel loitza when he did washington crossing to the delaware he actually had somebody measure the space between the buttons on washington's jacket that he wore at valley forge wow so there are moments like that that are very accurate but then there are other things that are extremely imagined like those poles which i think are brilliant that are the things that the 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 bearers of the casket would be holding yeah those those wooden poles he made those up he had somebody um carve them so that he would see what they'd look like but he he made them up and they're a brilliant device of of contrasted with those wheel ruts that are in the mud. Yeah. They pull those wheel ruts pull you back to the left and see what's going on with the whole funeral train that's part of the larger story. But the poles that the casket is being lifted up by diagonally pull you towards her and into that part of the painting. So there are little things that he it doesn't matter what the historical accuracy is of those, but they have the device of compositionally drawing your eye around the canvas and he knew how to do that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, that's that's what i look at so part of the brilliance of pradia is moments like that wow okay what was the next image you wanted to look at go to um i think it's that one that you're, you've got your finger on this is an early um color oil that um a color sketch that he does when he's just thinking he's he's now got drawings from his friends of what the candelabra and the and the casket look like 
and he's already done his sketch. Some of the he's got that um, early sketch of what um, in ink of of the uh, of this the thumbnail sketch, and I think this is his first attempt or one of his first attempts in oil. And you could see that he's trying to figure out. Um, I think one of the more interesting parts of this is 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 how um, how colorful is he going to be? Is an interesting question. Yeah. Um, but it is also interesting to me that he all of these figures he hasn't done sketches of in graphite the way a French person would, a French artist would. I, I'm, I know I keep banging on this, but it, it's so interesting to me that he's confident enough with oil to immediately go in and just work up these figures in a general way for what would be a color study without, with what the French would be considered skipping a lot of steps in between. Yeah. So my guess is that he did this first or one of that these two first. first, then he that did one's this. Probably second. Then he did this third, and then he's like, okay, I'm almost there. And he spread out the composition a little bit on the left. Yeah, you may be Changed right. your point of view you a little bit, right. and then went back. And if he didn't do another color study, he used the combination of these two to do this. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. You know what's great about this, too, is that um, we have a ton of his studies for this. And the yeah. reason is, is that it was so famous that... And it, it, he sends it to Spain where it wins the top national prize. And he gathers up, he gets the news of that, gathers up all of his stuff um, that are his studies and brings it with him from Italy where he painted it to Spain. And he signs it all and hands it out to friends as promotional pieces and to critics and to teachers. Hmm. So they all get a piece of the famous work by having his studies, wow. which then make their way into museums. Wow. Yeah, that's so, cool. We also don't know the order because he gives it all away. It doesn't stay in his collection in some like pristine way. It gets handed off to his best friend while he's on the boat in Barcel to Barcelona. And then, then when he's on the, whatever it is, the train or the cart from Barcelona to Madrid, I think it's a train at that point. He's given away other pieces, and then they all end up generations later in museums, and, and we're trying to piece together when what happened. So are we sure so that this one's not cropped? Which one? This one here. Are we sure that this one's not yes. cropped? We yeah, are. I'm sure that one's not cropped. I've okay. got another version of it that has had expanded. That, yeah. Because it's, sure it's almost identical to the finished painting, except that they did, he did change the clothing color here, and mm -hmm. um, but then he just added to the left. I mean, even the the tree almost lines up perfectly, almost not yes. quite, but I mean it's so similar, except he just added about, I don't know, I don't know in relative to the about this much, <laughs> in in yeah. relative to the sketch, just about another, another tenth or 10% to the right side. Which to me, the interesting thing about some of these choices, which to, this is the real work of painting, right? I and mean, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but the real work of painting are these minor adjustments. That it should be. Makes the final work. It should be, it should but be. it's a hard lesson to learn. At least it has been for me. And by adding on from that, that drawing, 
that 10% to the left, he's now created a funeral train that goes way back and it makes the, the it, it deepens the painting dramatically by having a group of figures going off into the distance rather than yeah. what the sketch has, which is, it, 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 I mean, it's hard to know from the sketch if he was thinking of it at the time, but it does a great, to have that curve around and go back um, in the final work, it's, it's, uh, it really, and then he, that, that deliberate um, warping of perspective that you were describing of the making that figure uh, and the landscape a little outsized from what it should be. Um, so when you're standing there in person, those figures, they look like figures in the distance and they're mm. barely there. They're barely painted. Really? No kidding. Yeah. They're barely there. And you know what's really great? And I was trying to find an image beforehand. That mud in the foreground, that brown area, is mostly bare canvas. No way. Really? And he does it on purpose. And the French mention it in particular. And he talks about it and says that he noticed that Velasquez used bare canvas often in order to get certain effects. Because the canvas that that Velasquez and a lot of the Spaniards were painting on was deliberately a very heavy weave. Oh, and it, it was, was a darker kind of linen, right? And so he's using that. And, and that is a contrast to what the Spanish are doing. So if, it's, it's hard to see it here. It really is hard to see unless you're seeing it in person. The it's it's a fairly brownish canvas that he just lets stick out. He doesn't treat the canvas with a lot of paint. In so that it's probably linen. Maybe it's linen that's because linen tends to be a little yeah. warmer. Um, yeah, man, it's amazing how unfinished it really is. I mean, he really, really tightens up on in certain areas, like in the fabric and these big candlesticks. Is that what you call a giant candlestick? Do you still call it a candlestick? Candelabra. Candelabra. I, I don't know, know. exactly I'm, what you call I'm it. I'm so low class. Um, but there are, some, there are some things that are so refined and other things are so unfinished. Like, it's surprising how unfinished her face is. I think when you see it um, in person, you maybe feel better about her face. No, I don't have a problem but, uh, with it. It's actually kind of, general, it's kind of refreshing. In general, you are very right that he, this is something that in that first image that we talked about where you said that that old woman in the background is barely painted. Yeah. And, and then the figure in the foreground is, is, is very highly painted. This is, I think, the lesson that he learns from Velasquez. He learns how the eye actually sees and how it effectively is, is, um, is taken advantage of by the painter is that you're, there are places that your eye focuses on and then there are places that are out of focus. And the French are teaching a very different model, which is the French are usually treating things with a lot of detail, no matter where they are in the painting. Yeah. Right? And, and, and Perdia is deliberately reacting against that. And even when he's got a huge canvas, He's keeping things out of focus that he could paint more detail in because 
he realizes that that's more effective. And that's what Carolus Duran, who's the teacher at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, starts teaching. And his students, and that's what Bonat teaches too, and the students of Bonat and Carolus Duran are Sargent, Eakins, um, Zorn. Um, other people looking at them are like uh, Danyan Bouveret, some of these artists who are doing Jean-Paul Laurent, these artists are starting to look at how the Spanish um, deliberately use those focus tricks and finish and lack of finish in mm. things to, to pull your eye around. Yeah, you know, and sometimes uh, when I'm painting, I think, is this okay, what I'm doing? You know, especially when I leave something unfinished, is this like, do I have permission from the art gods to like not finish this? <laughs> and it's, just, yeah. it's just weird. I don't know if I'm the only artist that does this, but I feel like uh, a refined, finished painting, you always have permission because, you know, it's like, well, it's done. It's officially done. Yeah. It's objectively complete. Right. But anything, right. anything that is less than that, there's always this little voice in my head, like, is this okay? And it's like, it's nice mm. with, with, I would imagine it would be nice for a, to live in Spain at this time and to have access to a master like Velasquez and to have that um, implied like permission. That permission. Yeah, hmm. by looking at his paintings, going to museums and be like, okay, it works for him, I can do this. You know, and that, that probably reflects more my own it's personal insecurities than reality. I never thought of it in those terms. It's so interesting that you'd put it in terms of like the permission from Velasquez to paint that way. I think it's such, it's so well said. It's, you know, it's, it's um, something else I was thinking of what, what I was thinking while you were talking too. I was listening, but I was thinking also of a conversation that I'd had with an artist who, he paints a lot from photographs and he's a very fine artist. Um, I'm gonna leave him unnamed because he may be, he, he may not want me to share this. But he was saying that he noticed that painting from photographs, he got too finished of a look. And so he deliberately blurs his photographs that he paints from and 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 paints from blurred photographs when he uses photographs. Interesting. And 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 uh, I thought, you know, that's a really it's a really interesting way of thinking about about this problem of finish of how the eye sees things of living in a world where things are, I think one of the reasons I like Perdia so much and why we like Velasquez so much and why the French like Velasquez so much is because we're kind of tired of seeing things as high res photorealism all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as interesting to us as, as because reality isn't high res photorealism uh, uh, photos. Mm -hmm. it, it, to me, it's, it's more like what Perdia is doing. Um, and, and I, uh, and, and that's, that's hard to do. It's really hard to do no matter what set of tools you have. It wasn't like, we know Perdita took photographs and used photographs for things, right? We know it. Oh, you we do. We know the same thing with Soraya. We know that the French had them too, but the French were doing highly finished work because I think part of their process of line drawing demanded it, right? And something about working in oil and values the way that the Spanish were led to a different result. 
Oh, that's um, absolutely the case. I mean, the, 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 how could I phrase this? So each process I feel like has its pluses and minuses, you know, and to me, when you work in the way that the French did, let's like Bougro as an example, I mean, Bougro is off the charts. He's right? unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. But there is a very linear quality where there's, and, and everything is so deliberate and so clean and precise, and there's not a lot of buildup. There's not a lot of history in the painting. Every leaf is outlined. And there's almost yeah. like a painting, and I'm not just speaking of Bougro, but just that whole process, anyone, that, any artist right. that painted in that process, there's like almost like a painting to the lines kind of a look to it. And everything is always perfect in one layer because there's yeah. so much preparation that goes into it that it eliminates the need for problem solving on the spot. So like hmm. you don't build up as much history, but then when you look at people like Velasquez and Pradilla and Soroya, it's like they're, they're solving problems as they go and they're building up all this history in the paint, layers hmm. and layers of scumbling and, and paint on top of paint as they make changes. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different look. The edges look different. It's a whole different look. I mean, there's a clear difference between, in my opinion, between Spanish painting and French painting because of that process. The process really kind of defines the quality in a way. It blew their minds when this went to Spain. I mean, there, there's, there you mean to France? there's article after article. Yeah, when the, sorry, when it went to France, thank you, yeah. Um, the French mention again and again, can't believe he left part of the canvas bare. <laughs> what a what a what a genius right like what a genius why didn't we think of that and 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 oh my gosh i can see his strokes because often the technique was to go back over things and to get a, a, a like a rabbit brush rabbit hair brush and to obscure and almost make look like porcelain the the figures and and all your painting to to get rid of all the little the, the little uh, rivets that are made by your brush strokes. So for him to do something this raw, it must've been like, um, gosh, I, there was that movie that um, Leonardo DiCaprio was in recently where he was, uh, not recently, over the past 10 years, where he was a mountain man. And, oh yeah, is that um, where he was attacked by a bear or something? And the whole thing was filmed in natural light. Hmm. And that was one of the things that the cinematographers that were commenting on it and the film directors kept saying of, oh, my gosh, look at how much he's getting from natural light, how real it feels, how it feels like it feels like you're in the situation. I imagine that's kind of what it felt like that the French all of a sudden looked at all these tools that they were using and all these approaches that they were using and thought, there's another way, you know, like, oh, my gosh, there's another way we don't have to have like this whole truck full of lights to film this scene, right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, they must have looked at, at Perdia and said, uh, wow, there's an alternative view. And the great thing about it too, that the French start saying is, they start saying, and it's based in the classics, in the old masters, because Velasquez did it. So it's not like they're looking at it like, there's this new kid on the block who's doing all this new stuff. They're saying there's this thing that's been going on for a long time 
that we just were ignoring and now we need to pay attention to it. And it's Velasquez. I don't know if it is entirely Velasquez because I think if you put Pradia and Velasquez next to one another, Pradia is very much of his era. The way oh yeah, they're not the same. Things. I mean, to me, this looks like an opera stage. This is the principal yeah. singer, the chorus, the huge background. This is this is an opera stage. This could have been a Wagnerian production of Das Rheingold or The Ring Cycle, you know, anything like that, right? And and it looks like a 19th century work. It doesn't look like it immediately came out of the 17th century. No, and, and I, I'm curious what you think about this. And the thing is, what I think the biggest difference is, I'd actually flip that a little bit. I see what you mean by the opera and the stage um, analogy, but in a way, I think Velasquez is more of a stage because it, his it, all of his figures are more posed in a dramatic way, and then and whereas these figures are more um, candid, like a snapshot in time. So you are absolutely right. There was an article that was published a couple of years ago about how important theater was during Velasquez's time. Yeah, the scale was just different. So yeah. instead of having a huge stage like they would have in the 19th century with 40 or 50 people on stage in Pradilla's time, they would have maybe five or six people on stage during Velasquez's time. Right. So you're, I mean, you couldn't be more right with what you're saying. But I think um, it's the, I wonder though, part of it is, and I don't wonder, mm -hmm. I know the 19th century made this candid quality possible because of photography. I mean, I don't know how much photography he used in this painting. Maybe none. I don't know. But it certainly I don't, influenced the way they saw the world because all of a sudden yeah. everything wasn't so posed. It was much more yeah. natural yeah, and you're candid. Right. You're right. So, you know, one of the questions I, I want to talk about his portraiture. I've got two pieces of portraiture I'm going to show you. But before you go off this image, I want to ask oh, you okay. a question. Yeah. Which is. Look, I told you the story at the very beginning, the subject of this. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting story and it tells you, you know, who the figures are in it. But I feel like at the end of this discussion that we've had about the painting, it doesn't really matter what the subject is because you just admire how good it is, right? And and when you were asking me earlier about why does Pradia why isn't he as famous as maybe some of these other artists? Because um, that was my, what I had suggested, right? That he wasn't right. as famous maybe because of subject, subject matter. I think for the average person, they walk into this. Almost everybody I've ever talked to who's been to the Prado and seen this in the Prado, they remember the painting and they remember being impressed by it and just being overwhelmed by it, whether they're an artist or not. But they don't know how to talk about the painting. And they don't know yeah. exactly why it's... why why it's it impressed them so much and i think that this is a lesson for artists that you can make the most amazing painting that no matter how good it is it will be timeless because of how good it is but it does help to have a subject or something to hang it on it's universal yeah i'm so glad you brought that up because that's why i asked you in the beginning that's why i was kind of drilling you a little bit because i'm it's yeah. a concern that i have as a painter i mean how Am I doing something that's going to last throughout time? I mean, I don't even know if it matters to me, but I do want to, I, I am curious if nothing else. Yeah. 
And um, but it's it's certainly a frustration for me. Um, maybe frustration is too strong of a word, but it's definitely something on my mind all the time. Like, yeah. because I I talk to friends and who are not artists or art historians and. And I and I watch the way they respond, and I ask what moves them in a painting, and it's always subject matter. It's like, I mean, my yeah. mother sometimes will say, "Is this a good painting?" You know, and I'm like, "Yeah, it's an okay painting, mom," or "It's not such a great painting," or "It is a great painting," and she's like, "Oh, I really liked it because they were smiling," you know, or something. <laughs> it's almost like you could do a you math know? equation and say that, and say that, for most people good subject will make up for bad painting because they can't tell the difference. But right. And that's, that's where the frustration bad subject, lies. Yeah. Bad subject with a good painting like this. And this isn't a bad subject. It's just not universal. Right. And so it's, it's less universal subject with one of with in the math equation with some of the best painting you've ever seen. Is it, I think that most paintings that are, poorly painted, but good subjects, they're usually the first to go in the evolutionary race of paintings, right? In the, in the, it, 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 like, who cares in the end about a, a, a Christ painting that's really poorly painted, but everybody who looks at it gets a warm fuzzy because they think of everything that they've learned about Jesus Christ, right? right? The painting, the painting will disappear over time because those people will just replace it with another subject. It's the ones that are painted well that will last over time. The more interesting question to me is what happens to a painting that is a so, so like boring to most people as a subject, but totally dynamic and amazing to look at because of how well it's painted. Well, then is, those are the ones that'll be collected by the very small population. I mean, yeah, they're the very small market for that, but, but, but this is what I learned from it is that in order for me to be a great artist, I have to learn the lesson that good painting is only the beginning. And then mm. you have to do something with it. It's like, it, it's, it's one thing to have, a, it's one thing to be able to uh, cut amazing dovetails that are perfect with no cracks or, or no spaces between the two pieces of wood, right? But right. what good is that if the furniture you make is worthless and useless and useless and right. and ugly, right? Um, you gotta once you have the skill, then what are you gonna do with it that's meaningful? But I think yeah, as a painter, sometimes that. it's easy to be like, "Look what I can do," and then forget about communicating with the public. And it's easy yeah. as an artist too to get this elitist. This is sort of actually pet peeve of mine. This elitist thing, like, no, the public is too stupid to understand me, so I'll continue to paint nonsense. Um, and I don't think that's the right. case at all. I think that um, I think that yeah, we should definitely really be doing thoughts. things that that not yeah. not painting for the public, but we should be asking ourselves if no one if no one is is being moved by our work at all it might not be their problem. It might be our problem. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I want to show you, I want to end on two pieces. Okay. Um, they're both portraits that give you an idea of, he didn't do a lot of portraiture for hire. He mostly made his money teaching as a government worker. But when he wanted to paint in a French 
style, which he was commissioned to do for this painting, um, he could do it. I, this is, yeah. when I say French style, I mean, he wanted, if when somebody came to him and said, I want a high society painting, geez. Yeah. I mean, look at. It's French-ish. It's French-ish, but it's French still got him in it. It's, he didn't, he go, didn't go uh, all the way there. I want you to zoom in on different parts. I want your commentary, somebody who does portraits, on what you feel, how you feel about it. It reminds me of Ong for some reason. I don't know why. I think that's a, I think he was very familiar with Ong. His teacher's teacher was Ong. So he studied with Federico de Madrasso, and Federico de Madrasso was a student of Ong. Okay. Or Ang. I mean, it's, um, it's incredible. I, it's like he's, it's like he's French in the arms and the face and Spanish in the clothing. Look at that, that hand curling over the, um, of the left hand there. Isn't that gorgeous? Her left or our and, left? Yeah. Her uh, left. His left, our right. Yeah. 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 That's cool. But those are the things that remind me of Ong. They're almost like, uh, idealized female hand. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, he definitely could, could do it. Do the he French was, thing, but he still had all that history. You still got this great textural yeah. painterly quality in a lot of it, like in the background and then the dress down here. That blue in person is so rich and meaty and luxurious. It's just, and her dress, which feels kind of flat here, is so beautifully velvety at the te texture of how just how he lays the paint down in this and the contrast between that part you're talking about that has history on the bottom right with all those interesting colors and then the the texture of the silk and the texture of his, her velvet and then the texture of her skin he nails it all mm. um and and how the temperature changes at the ends of the fingers at it with her lips and cheeks and her neck is it it's just all of these these subtle things. It's, it's when I saw this at the end. It was near the end of the exhibition that I saw in Madrid. I was like, if you had put a different painter's name on it, and said, you know, this is somebody who who is a contemporary, um, but who was working in Paris, I would have said, yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's it it's it was just amazing to me how he could go between them. But for fun, look at the last one that I have, which is the the one that they use as the poster on everything they did for the exhibition. This is a watercolor. What? No way. Yeah, it's a watercolor. That's a watercolor. Wow, that is and really cool. You you look at, at this is he. There's for every one portrait that he did in oil of a society person, there are twenty that he did of anonymous people as watercolors or oils. He worked in watercolors a lot. He did? And his watercolors, yeah, his watercolors were good. Really good. So with his watercolors, did he do a drawing first? You can see, no, he, you can see underdrawings, but not a lot of it. You can see that there are, there are rough outlines of, of, of things that he's going into, but most of it is like his oil. He, he kind of comes up with this rough outline with a gra in a graphite and then goes immediately into uh incredible it is incredible in person i mean it's just incredible but that is a watercolor can you i believe thought that, that was oil yeah how big is this 
Do you remember? Um, I think it's roughly 30 by 18. Oh, it's something big. like that. So it's big. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question about this one. Cause you saw it in person. You asked me my opinion. I want to know your opinion. So you saw it in person. This is what I'm seeing, what it looks like to me, but tell me what, if I'm right, is the skin handled like a French painter, very smooth with no brushwork, no, no visible brush marks. Yeah, yeah, it largely is. And something that he does a little differently than Aang does is Aang would have had along her shoulders and along her arms a very solid line, right? I mean, it would have, you would have just seen like the black line almost painted as right. a single line this around the shoulders, right? And he, he softens all the edges in a way that I don't think a French artist, I don't know, maybe it's, it's too broad of a brush to paint the French with at the time of saying that they all would have had solid lines. Aang was from the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. He's kind of dominating. Their edges do get a little blurry and blended, but I think that he does have more of a blended edge than others. But you're, you, you are right that, that it, it does feel very porcelain in her skin. And then and the... it feels, you don't see a lot of the strokes. And then is um, it thicker and more painterly, like heavier impasto on the dress? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is heavier. Okay. It's, it's so heavier. The, yeah. Wow. But and you can it, imagine that if you're a society woman, you do want to look like you're sophisticated in French, right? Right. 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 So she wants the famous painter, Spanish painter, painter Padilla, but she doesn't want all of Padilla. She wants Padilla to be a little French. <laughs> you can imagine like that conversation being, you know, I'm a Spanish countess and I want our greatest painter to paint us. I'm not going to go to a French painter, but the French are in style. So Perdia, can you do me a solid? Oh, I don't have to imagine it. I'm a portrait painter. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love and the way you paint and, the portrait, but can you paint mine a little different? So there are less wrinkles and less this and less that. And I'm like, but that's kind of what yeah. I like to paint. They're like, yeah, but for me, <laughs> can you do it a little different? I want to look younger yeah. and, I'm like, Arr. but then you go to the watercolor and you can see <laughs> yeah. how much in the watercolor. I mean, this is an anonymous woman. We don't know who this is that he's painting. Yeah, he's and having he fun really, with this one. He really captures it in a way that he never would in a commissioned portrait. Right. 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 And you can see, you can see. I mean, his watercolors. I would love to sit down with somebody who does watercolors full time to find out how he does it because watercolors to me are they're so unforgiving as a medium yeah um i don't know how he does this i don't know how he does it i don't know i know I he's either. layering watercolors i don't know how he does it i've literally never done a watercolor significant watercolor painting i've only played around with it for a few minutes at a time it's very <laughs> yeah it's a whole different whole different animal than oil it it speaks a lot to how curious of a person he was. Um, he was put into an academic and administrative position um, for a brief time. Um, and then he, he basically spends the rest of his life in Rome overseeing the school in Rome, which is where the elite Spanish artists go. And that's where Soroya shows up. And what Soroya says about him is interesting, is he says, I show up and I have a, I have a tempestuous, passionate side of me that loves color and loves brushwork 
and Pradia disciplined me and taught me how to do lines. And, and, and that's what he says. Hmm. Um, he taught me how to do line. And what I find interesting about that comment is that if it came from a French student talking about Aang, you would say, oh, yeah, Aang did really strong lines that were all the way through his pieces, right? Mm -hmm. The full figure, it seems like one line, even though it usually really isn't, but he makes it seem very clean. If you look at Pradia, do you think of lines? I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have either. He and he dies... Um, Soroya dies in 23, in his about 60 years old. Perdia, I think, is 20 years older than him, and he dies two years before Soroya. And they have a lifelong friendship where Perdia is just saying, Soroya, you're doing so well. I'm learning so much looking at your work. You get the sense that Perdia is the most humble, um, non-competitive, experimental person he's working in oils he's working in large scale he's working in small scale he's working in watercolor he's 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 just doing everything that he possibly can and at the same time because his position is guaranteed as that director of the school he doesn't have a lot of demands on what he does with his art hmm. so he paints what he likes which for better or for worse means that he's still productive um but the productive stuff he's doing isn't it's sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's minstrels in gardens painting to die, singing to dying women. And you think, huh? Okay. But it's one of the most beautifully painted paintings I've ever seen, but it's a minstrel painting to a dying woman. And there aren't many people in the 1920s or 1910s who want a minstrel scene. Mm -hmm. Now he's a little old fashioned. I, I think that anybody who wants to learn um, who wants to learn composition and values should look at you know at Pretty's work and really learn something about how he puts a painting together. I think I think how he also ends putting 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 a work together the way that he he leaves things finishes some things and leaves things unfinished is another huge lesson. Mm -hmm. to get from Pradia. Yeah. I think you're going to have a hard time finding a lot of images by him. <laughs> yeah. There aren't a lot online. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, Micah. I really appreciate I know how busy you are. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast with me again. I love doing them, Jeff. I love talking to you about art. You're the best. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.